Welcome to Small Islands Big Picture, the podcast that puts small islands in focus. I'm Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI and Director of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, RESI, the network behind this podcast. And I'm Matt Bishop. I'm an academic at the University of Sheffield in Northern England, and I'm also one of the directors of RESI. Today, we're focusing on small islands that are not independent states, so they are therefore not small island developing states or SIDS as such, but they're rather non-sovereign. These are sometimes called overseas territories, OTs, or subnational island jurisdictions, SNIDGES, and they are usually part of a larger metropolitan power in some way. So countries such as Britain or France or the US, and they're often physically distant from the metropole. They've sometimes been called because of this fragments of empire. these territories are interesting to us precisely because they're similar to SIDS. They share a lot of the same challenges and, and features, but of course they're not independent. They're not sovereign states. So for the next 30 minutes, we're going to discuss the challenges and options faced by these unique territories. And we're going to begin today by hearing first from one of our RESI co-directors, Professor Jack Corbett of Monash University, based in Australia, who is an expert on the politics of non-sovereign islands. So they're really significant places, often much more significant than people realise, precisely because they don't really fit the conventional understanding of what constitutes statehood or sovereignty. And snitches are quite diverse. In fact, they represent, I think, in political science terms, they're emblematic of the diversity of political forms in the post-Second World War era. And the reason for this is because while essentially most would have considerable autonomy over how they govern themselves on a domestic level, they retain these relationships, usually by choice. Uh, with a metropolitan power, often the former colonial power. It's, it's always a trade-off. There are aspects of being a, a snidge that appear attractive. Most often have much higher levels of GDP per capita than independent small states, for example. Because of some of the sectors they've been able to generate income from, like offshore finance. But at the same time, they have this sort of ongoing low level in some cases, but it can also escalate tension with the metropolitan power about how they're governed. Stitches face all the same sort of pressures in relation to climate change as independent states and many of the same threats to other key sectors like tourism sector, for example. So they're really interesting and important for us to think about among the world of small islands, if you like, because they're this quite unique group that shares challenges, but at the same time has a very different experience by virtue of their political status. So as Jack has just suggested, there are a whole range of different issues and important kind of questions that emerge when we think about non-sovereign territories, depending on the kind of thing that we're interested in. This is also a subject very close to my heart personally. I first went to the French overseas departments of Martinique and Guadeloupe to do my PhD research almost 20 years ago. And I've spent the last year or so working on the project with Jack that looks at election governance in the British overseas territories. Personally, I think that these territories are fascinating because they all share a common challenge of striving for ever greater autonomy. 
uh, and in some cases independence, while embodying a staggering degree of difference in levels of development, economic challenges, political relationships with the metropole and aspirations for future change. And these are going to be some of the things that we cover uh, in the remainder of the podcast. So since our last podcast, I've been working on a project with the Asian Development Bank looking at fragility and resilience in the Pacific small island developing states. And one of the topics that keeps coming up really is the issue of sea level rise, resettlement and what that means for them as as states. So we'll be looking at that in our next episode, which is in October. But let's move now to our Island Voices section where we're going to hear from Dr. Geneve Philip, who is the Interim Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University College of the Cayman Islands. With the exception of Bermuda, Puerto Rico and the former Netherlands, Antilles, over the past couple decades, there have been no independence referendum in the Caribbean, so there must be a reason for that. Perhaps the social and economic benefits and jurisdictional capacity and autonomy they possess far outweigh their desire to sever ties with their metropolitan powers, as that will also obviously have implications for immigration and citizenship. This is the most interesting question about the Cayman Islands and UK relationship, I continue to be amazed by the fact that Cayman remains one of the only subnational island jurisdictions in the Caribbean that I haven't seen or heard of any movements that overtly challenge or question that relationship. Don't get me wrong, there are pockets of individuals that do, but that could in no way compare to the one SXM movement in St. Martin or similar movements in Puerto Rico or Bermuda because it's evident that independence hasn't brought about some of the benefits that had been hoped for. So generally speaking, there seems to be great pride in that relationship. So I'd want to say that it's jurisdictional capacity and soft power, the ability to pass its own laws, facilitate the massive inward capital flows that yield the level of economic growth and development that Cayman has experienced since the 1990s that has placated discussions that may be contrary to the current ethos. So it's stories like that that Geneve has just discussed that really drove us to create a network to prioritise the issues facing small island developing states in the first instance, but really small islands as a whole. This is really Resi's core focus. What we're doing at the moment in terms of this more broadly is we're thinking quite heavily about the future development options of SIDS. And we're about to launch a process of what we're calling SIDS dialogues with the UN and some other agencies, including AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, uh, which will try to feed in academic expertise to the planning process for the big fourth international conference on SIDS that takes place in Antigua next year. So now we have our explainer, 10 things you might not know already about overseas territories. I'll start with number 10. In the case of the British overseas territories, they're not actually part of the UK, even though they're under British jurisdiction and sovereignty. So not part of the UK, even though they're sometimes referred to as 
uh, UK overseas territories. Number nine, they're not actually part of the UK, but this isn't always true depending on the metropolitan power in question. So in some cases, let's take the French overseas departments, they are actually fully integrated parts of the French, the French polity, the French state. They elect senators to the French Senate, they elect deputies to the National Assembly, and they are overseas departments. So they're kind of analogous, I suppose, to a US state or a British county. They just happen to be overseas and very distant from mainland France. Yeah. And number eight is where are they in the world? So there are these overseas territories and non-sovereign jurisdictions in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific, the Indian Ocean and the Caribbean and the South Atlantic, of course, like the Falkland Islands. Absolutely. And that brings us to number seven, which is how many of them there are. Um, And this really depends on how you measure them, right? Because you could push the definition out as far as you wanted to, and you could include potentially territories like Greenland. And then you suddenly get to a point where there are many, many dozens, and if not hundreds of non-sovereign small island territories in the world. The conventional, more narrow definition would suggest there are probably a few dozen of them, and they tend to be linked to just a handful of metropolitan powers. But in principle, you could expand the definition as widely as you like. So I'm presently recording this from Trinidad and Tobago. Some people would suggest that Tobago really is a a non-sovereign jurisdiction of Trinidad as its metropolitan power. And so I guess that that also affects, well, number six, I was going to talk about population, I guess, depending on how you measure them, how you decide which one's overseas territories, that would affect that as well. But I was just looking at the numbers. I think there are about 1.2 million people in the British and EU overseas territories around the world. So that's about 270,000 just in the British overseas territories. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But one of the contentious questions you then get to is how the EU defines them, because the EU has two separate groups of territories, the way it conceives of them. So it has the ultra peripheral regions, which aren't included in those population figures, as I understand it. So this would include the French overseas departments, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Réunion, uh, Mayotte and French Guiana. Because they're integral parts of France, they don't count as overseas territories in the French or European conceptualization in quite the same way. But then you have all of the other French territories, which are not fully integrated into France, uh, and they would be included. And in the EU context, they would be called overseas countries and territories, which is the status that the British overseas territories had when Britain was still a member or the UK was still a member of the European Union. And number five um, is that they are very rich in biodiversity. Now, I haven't really got any facts or figures to hand, but I know in the case of the UK that there is a great deal more biodiversity in the British overseas territories than there is in mainland Britain by a long way. I think, you know, we we include them and we refer to them as being part of the UK when it's um, useful to do so, probably, in terms of talking about our own mm. biodiversity <laughs> and exclude them when it's not. <laughs> I think that's right. And that reflects something we said in the very first podcast, doesn't it, Emily, about the fact that small islands as a whole have a disproportionate amount of the world's biodiversity and particularly rare plants and birds and sea life and and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Number four 
is the financial situation of non-independent territories. And this is something that varies widely. Some of them have achieved exceptionally high levels of development, some of them perhaps a bit less so. And again, depending on the metropolitan power, they have quite different financial relationships. So because, again, the French islands are a great comparison here because they're fully integrated into France, they get a significant amount of metropolitan transfer payments they have very, very high levels of infrastructural development. But then in other cases, particularly where there's a slightly looser relationship with the metropolitan power, the relationship financially might also be a bit looser and the territories find themselves a bit more on their own. So in the case of the British overseas territories, they're actually quite diverse in terms of their levels of development. Cayman is probably the famous one in terms of having a huge offshore financial sector that has been pretty successful. Some of the others have not done quite so well in those terms, even though they have things like offshore finance as well. Mm. I was looking at this, there are four, I think, British overseas territories that are not considered financially self-sufficient. So then they have like what they call a first call on the aid budget. Yeah. That's Montserrat, um, Pitkin, St. Helena and Tristan de Cunha. And, that's, and I think that reflects the diversity as well, doesn't it? Because you're you're dealing with four territories there that are either in Montserrat's case has suffered a terrible disaster in terms of the volcano. So developmentally that's had a, a huge impact. And then the other three are very, very remote, very, very isolated and very, very small as well. So, you know, <laughs> beyond the smallness that we normally talk about, Pitcairn's population is just 67 people. <laughs> So these are really, really tiny places. I mean, you can't generate a high level of financial development with such a tiny population. Number three is around citizenship rights. So this varies between the different types of overseas territories. In the UK, as I understand it, citizens of the overseas territories don't have automatic British citizenship. So that means they don't have a right to live and work in the UK necessarily, but I think they, they can apply for it. As you mentioned before, the French overseas territories, it's quite different. They really are part of France. And so they have a right, you know, freedom of movement within France. And then, of course, within Europe as well, within the EU. I think that's right. So there is actually a really interesting, important historical explanation for this, which is when the French finally ended slavery and a new republic was created, the French essentially granted people citizenship. And that set in train kind of a longer term historical process of integration. Um, whereas the British view of its empire was quite different. There, there, there wasn't ever to be this kind of integrative of uh, Angleterre, d'outre-mer, in the way there was with France. Number two, how do the British overseas territories, for example, compare to other groups of territories, whether British, because Britain also has the crown dependencies, so Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, or the others, the Dutch, the French and the American. Well, I think the point to make here really is a simple one, is that there is huge diversity, both in the level of integration and the nature of the relationship between the metropolitan power and the overseas territory in question. The amount of autonomy that territory has can differ quite widely, and for example, in the British case, the Crown Dependencies have an entirely different relationship with the UK to the overseas territories. Their relative autonomy is hundreds of years old, and they have a direct relationship with the Crown as sovereign, not Parliament or the government of the UK, which is quite different to the British overseas uh, territories. Number one, which ones should you visit? Well, I don't know. They're so, so diverse, aren't they? I loved yeah. 
Montserrat when I went there to do some research and we were looking at kind of what happened after the volcanic crisis and in terms of the relationship with Westminster and how that had changed. I I mean, it's just a beautiful country, staggering scenery, but then you've got, you know, Greenland as well. So a huge amount of diversity. I don't know, where would you, where would you go, Matt, that you haven't been? Well, well, our guests have just arrived and I've just come back from the British Virgin Islands, which is where one of our guests is from. So I should probably say the BVI. Uh, The BVI is a staggeringly beautiful and diverse place. I mean, Tortola, for one of the smaller Caribbean islands, the thing that struck me when I got there is just how mountainous the topography is. I mean, it's more mountainous than some of the bigger islands in terms of you know driving around Tortola is is quite an experience because everywhere you go you're going up a massive hill or down another massive hill which I found quite amazing the non-independent territory or the island that I'm particularly in love with is Guadeloupe I spent my PhD field work there and again Guadeloupe's just stunningly beautiful you know it's shaped like a butterfly the lower island has a huge volcano and black sand beaches and a massive jungle and then the island to the east um, is is much flatter and then there are a whole set of constituent islands some of whom have actually chosen to leave Guadeloupe and they've also selected different relationships subsequently with France which is very very interesting so this would be Saint Martin and Saint Barthélemy um, but there are also other islands. Marie-Galante, which is just off the coast, has an old-fashioned, still-working sugar estate that still presses sugar for rum using kind of mechanical means. has loads of wild pigs roaming around. And then Les Saintes are beautiful as well. And the people of Les Saintes, they kind of descend directly from Breton seafarers. So they have a completely different kind of ethnic makeup to other parts of the territory. So I've always found Guadeloupe a completely fascinating mm. place and would love to go back again and again. So now we come to this segment called The Big Picture. This is where we invite a special guest or two, and today we do have two, uh, to take us behind the headlines of a story of interest to us. First, based in Washington, D.C., Benito Wheatley is the special envoy of the British Virgin Islands government and the Premier's advisor on international relations. These titles are themselves revealing, actually, in the context of our discussion. If BVI were independent, Benito would be called an ambassador and the Premier would be a prime minister or a president. Um, Benito is a long-standing advocate of greater autonomy for the British OTs. Professor Peter Clegg is head of the School of Social Sciences at the University of the West of England in Bristol. And it's fair to say he's the UK's foremost academic expert on the non-sovereign Caribbean in general and the British overseas territories in particular. He recently completed an important project examining the evolution of the relationship between those territories and the UK. Welcome Benito and Peter, thanks hugely for joining us. So we're going to have a discussion now uh, about your kind of experiences and expertise. I'll jump in with the first one, if that's okay, Emily. Mm -hmm. Um, What for you two are the most important things that our listeners who may not know anything at all about uh, either the OTs or non-sovereign island territories in general, what should they know? Some are relatively large, others have no permanent populations. Some have significant uh, economic outputs, others are still dependent on UK development aid. And also the fact that a contribution the territories can make to the security, the environmental well-being, the economic performance of the UK more generally. So I'd say those are some of the key issues. The overseas territories will have international and global significance. For example, many of them are international finance centers where they facilitate investment and trade for countries and companies and individuals around the world. 
So they are globally significant as well. It is interesting that you both talk about really positive aspects and really what they've got to offer. I'm sure some people or maybe the government in the UK also has a slightly different view and sometimes they really highlight some of the sort of negative things. I've heard people in, in, in government talk about this idea that they are a contingent liability and you know things can happen in the overseas territories that then you know the UK government has to step in. These kind of narratives, where do you think they come from? Well, the UK does have ultimate responsibility for the overseas territories, even though a number of issues are devolved to the territories themselves. So the UK is concerned with that ultimate responsibility in the international system for the territories. So if things do go wrong, or if there are significant natural disasters, for example, then the UK needs to step in. And the UK feels that, of course, they have some responsibility to the UK taxpayer for how money is spent. So I think this is an interesting issue in terms of how much responsibility, how much oversight the UK should have over the overseas territories, and that really links into the issue of of liabilities. Of course, you know, a lot of focus is on those, but actually it is a much broader picture. So I think that's why we started with the positives, Mm -hmm. because often they are lost in the broader discussions about the territories. So I think that's very important. That is a very nuanced picture, and actually the liabilities are overall a generally small part of the day-to-day relationship between the territories and the UK. The UK Parliament is where you tend to get negative attacks on overseas territories, and most of of those attacks are are related to financial services Mm. because they are MPs, they are peers who don't agree with the business model of these overseas territories, such as BVI, Bermuda, Cayman. So a lot of the negativ- negativity is really aimed at that issue and less about others. Part of the challenge that we face in terms of understanding the overseas territories is that there's not much public information shared in the UK itself about overseas territories, their history, their environments, their economies, and most importantly, their people. And therefore, I believe there's a lot of ignorance about the overseas territories that leads to some of the negative views that we hear or or see. I think that's very true. And and maybe that goes back to your original question around liabilities. Actually, when the overseas territories often hit the news, it's about when things go wrong rather than when things go right or when there's a positive news story. And just going back a little bit in terms of the offshore financial sector issue, I mean, it's interesting that many politicians, certainly in opposition, are quite critical. But when those politicians come into government, they recognize that it is a complicated and complex position. So a a real fundamental existential question, really, for any UK government would be if the offshore financial services sector was not there, and a lot of effort is made to make, make sure that international standards are adhered to, and that, you know, progress is made on a regular basis to ensure those sectors are as strong as possible is what would come in, in in its place. So that goes back to would the UK public be prepared to provide significant resources to support these territory economies. So I think a, an aspect which is quite different perhaps from the French territories, for example, is the fact that the majority of the UK overseas territories are financially, economically independent. Mm. 
I think that's a really important point that people don't understand, really, isn't it? This, this kind of sense that the offshore finance sector is a bit more complicated. So someone in Cayman put it to me when I was there a while ago, that essentially there's quite a lot of transactions that take place in Cayman between, say, big Chinese firms or big US firms that just couldn't actually really happen anywhere else because they don't want to be in each other's jurisdictions for particular kinds of activities that need to take place. I mean, is that a fair, is, is it fair to say, I guess, that, that there's a lot of misunderstanding of exactly what the offshore finance sector does? Yeah, I, I think there definitely is. And uh, we, we have to do a better job of educating the public about the sector. Uh, one of the challenges that we face with the media, the UK media in particular, is that they are just honed in on certain aspects of the industries that can be controversial. But I think if, the, if they had the entire picture, if they presented the entire picture, one would see that the overseas territories have done well as financial centers. In fact, that's the reason they're very successful. They adhere to international standards set by the OECD and the FATF, as it concerns anti-money laundering, tax evasion, and those things. That's the reason why persons are able to use those jurisdictions without sanction. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Benita in particular, about climate change and how how do non-sovereign territories really address the, the challenges in relation to climate change? I mean, you, you don't have access to... You know, the big funds, the Green Climate Fund and others, is that, is that, does that make it very difficult? And what, what are the other sort of particular challenges that you face in relation to that? Well, well, thank you for that question. And we are very well aware of what it means as an island to be vulnerable to, to a change in the climate. So <clears throat> you're right, we do have a serious challenge because... We do not qualify under the OECD rules for international development assistance, but it's not simply because of our status. It's a matter of, of income because other OTs that qualify for overseas development assistance can get some form of funding. Now, the challenge for most small and developing states, and we are categorized by the UN as a special group of small and developing states, is that if you're medium or high income, there is little out there that you can access in terms of resources to support your efforts to build climate resilience. This is a huge problem. The UK is working with small and developing states, and I know Matt is doing some of this work to help these small and developing states to, to get greater access to the funds available to kind of shift the international rules to let them get concessional financing and so on. We want the same thing for BVI and other OTs that don't have access. Because the issue, as I understand it, is not simply about our status, it's about our income, the level of our income. Even the UK says that they can't use the international development budget to support us on climate change because our income is too high, our per capita income. But I think that this is not the correct approach. The UK itself, as well as the small developing states, support the development of a multidimensional vulnerability index that's being developed by the UN to measure one a country's or jurisdiction's needs based on their vulnerability. And then we have to press the UK government not just to adjust rules for 
the, the independent small, small and developing states, but for its own overseas territories who are just as vulnerable and have already suffered the consequences of climate change. Can I just add of course, please. something here? So it goes, it goes, it's one of the, as you might remember, Matt, at the, the conference that we held related to the project, there was a lot of discussion around the balance of the relationship between the UK and the territories and the idea of sort of constitutional overreach. You know, to what extent should the UK get involved in the, the issues and concerns of the territories themselves? Now, of course, the environment is a devolved responsibility. So this is an interesting issue also when it comes to the level of potential funding in the future for the territories. If the territories, or at least some of the territories, aim for greater autonomy, do some of those liabilities, which again were mentioned earlier, go further down to the territory and are relieved from the UK? And maybe there are some uh, discussions there around the extent of funding. So it's quite a complicated and interesting issue. So when the territories feel we want greater autonomy, we want greater freedom, how far does that go? And you know, can there be a separation between political and constitutional involvement on the one hand and assist, you know, aid and financial support on the other. The other related issue is the, the extent of different forms of funding, which Benito mentioned. Of course, we haven't mentioned the B word Brexit mm. up to now, but it, ha it, is, it has had a significant impact to the overseas territories. And one of those is the nature of the financial support that the EU did provide to most of the territories, including in relation to the environment. We can't stress enough how important EU funding was to those territories that could not access funds elsewhere because of their per capita income level. The EU, I believe, would be willing to continue with some form of development cooperation if the UK is willing to be cooperative with them, perhaps on some other issues as well. And as you know, Matt, in terms of the nature of EU funding, it's planned over a longer period. And in terms of sort of regional cooperation is a key element of that. Uh, so something which I think the BVI and other territories have lost is that close to working relationship with the French territories, the Dutch territories. So it's not just the funding per se, but it's also the nature of the funding that the EU can provide. The territories have to operate with the UK in this space. As the UK navigates its way, we also have to do the same. And of course, we talked earlier about territories being liabilities to the UK, but there's also the other way around, right? Where the territories can suffer if the UK is not able to manage its relations in the world. And Brexit has demonstrated how territories can be impacted negatively from a UK decision. Falklands and Gibraltar are key examples, as well as the rest of the territories. So I think that there has to be a new conversation between the territories and the UK. We have to escape the old thinking and framework of the past two decades.
So we come now to the segment called No Stupid Questions, where we invite listeners to write into us with any kind of burning questions that they have about themes that we may be taking up in future podcasts. This week, we're asking the question of why it is that the non-independent territories that exist that we're interested in are not becoming independent. Why, for the most part, have they elected to maintain a kind of dependent relationship with their metropolitan country? What's the answer, Emily? I mean, I, I guess they would have different reasons, right? But I do remember being at a conference in, in the Caribbean with disaster managers and the head at the time of the kind of regional organisation saying that actually, you know, the overseas territories were doing better, you know, a sense that they were getting kind of more support, maybe were avoiding some of the issues that the really small independent islands in the Caribbean were having to face with getting all the resources together themselves and not really having any sort of technical assistance or guidance or structure coming from a wealthier country that could kind of step in to help. Certainly when it came to responding to crises that, you know, the UK, well, sometimes the the response might have been delayed um, and maybe not entirely what was hoped for, but at least they were getting it. You know, they didn't have to apply for resources from one of the development banks or, or go and have another conversation with a bilateral donor to kind of get some support. So I think that that may be one of the attractions, you mm. know, that something goes wrong. You've got, you know, the UK government or the sort of central government of France to kind of step in with assistance. So that kind of leads to a broader point about just levels of development, doesn't it? And I think there's definitely the case that the level of development in many, but not all of the these overseas territories is often a bit higher than it is in some of the independent countries, although not, not exclusively. I mean, you know, Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago and many other places have generated very high levels of, of development. But it's hard to see that Cayman would have created its financial services sector on the scale that it has without also having kind of recourse to British law, essentially, mm. and the kind of certainty that that provides. The French overseas departments, certainly in the case of Martinique and Guadeloupe, have kind of very, very high levels of infrastructural development. When I first went there, I flew from some of the other independent Caribbean islands. I'd spent a long time going around Dominica and St. Vincent and Grenada and, and other places, St. Lucia. And I arrived in Martinique and I just couldn't believe the scale of, of development and just how kind of strong the infrastructure is. But of course, that has its own trade-offs as well. Quite serious structural, economic and social problems, very, very high levels of unemployment, for example, particularly amongst young people, which is also a kind of an outcome of that particular development model that generates high levels of metropolitan transfers, but also undermines kind of domestic economic development in certain ways. And I wonder if it's changing as well, those kind of benefits or don't seem to be quite as strong anymore. What happens you know, in the Caribbean, if you want to, you know, go from BVI to one of the French overseas territories, now you need to get your passport stamped, whereas before you just got on a boat and turned up there yeah. and no one would have asked to see anything. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a big problem. But even for the, the territories that are ostensibly or are you know, completely integrated within the European Union, there are also problems. So, 
you know, when the European single market project was completed in the 1990s, people in the French overseas departments were terrified. They, they thought that this would severely undermine their levels of development. Now, what actually happened is throughout the late 90s and 2000s, huge amounts of European transfer payments came into the territories alongside the French uh, transfer payments that also supported all manner of um, industrial development, I suppose. And I, I wrote about this quite a lot early on in my career. The really interesting thing that happened to the men was that after 2004, when the European Union widened and the accession countries came in, suddenly Martinique and Guadeloupe, for example, found themselves relatively much wealthier than the poorest parts of the European Union, because the poorest parts of the European Union were now much, much poorer at that point in time. So they were, they were really worried that they would lose a lot of the uh, money that they'd been getting from the EU. But what the EU has always done quite cleverly is it's created these new categories of ultra-peripheral regions. So instead of giving money to the overseas departments on the basis of their relative poverty as poorer regions of the EU, so that would be the French overseas departments, but it would also be the Portuguese Azores, Madeira, it would also be the Canary Islands as well, though they, they, they didn't enjoy money anymore on the basis of their wealth, they got money on the basis of their peripherality, i.e. their distance from the European um, mainland. So there was a lot of very complex politics around Mm. around that kind of distribution of metropolitan finance to these places. Mm. So, so yeah, some, some benefits clearly, but these are not obvious and maybe they're, you know, they're sort of hard fought yeah. and, and vary across the different overseas territories, like, you know, what they might actually benefit from. Yeah. I think that's right. I think there's one other reason why, at least an obvious reason why they don't necessarily move towards independence. And it's that autonomy kind of works quite well. I mean, it's often a bit of an uneven and problematic compromise. I mean, there's a lot of agitation for ever greater autonomy in most of these territories. But even then, the public support for independence is quite low because people are quite happy with the, the status quo. And I think in some of the territories, the relationship with the metropolitan power has now been such a long one. Um, and in many cases, they were often also scared of the alternative, right? The reason Cayman became an overseas territory eventually was because originally Cayman was linked to Jamaica and they didn't want to be part of Jamaica. The same is true of many other of the now British overseas territories. Anguilla originally was part of what is now St. Kitts Nevis, was once called St. Christopher. And the relationship there has always been perceived, you know, the, the people of Anguilla were much, much less happy with the idea of a relationship with an independent St. Kitts Nevis than they were with, with Britain as a, as a kind of former colonising power. So, so there are a whole set of complex historical reasons why these relationships endure. So this brings us to the end of a fascinating discussion. Further information and links to all the issues we've discussed in the episode, including Peter's report that he mentioned, can be found in the show notes. We also have a bonus episode featuring more content from Peter and Benito on the politics of the overseas territories. So this isn't actually the end of our conversation about the overseas territories. In early October, we're going to be doing an online seminar event with Peter, which we'll share more information about on the Resi webpage. Next month on Small Islands Big Picture, we'll be talking about the problem of sea level rise, which to a greater or lesser extent affects every island in the world. In particular, we're going to be looking at what this means for resettling populations who are affected by the very worst consequences of climate change. 
We want to hear from you what your thoughts are on the topics we've spoken about today, about overseas territories and the vulnerabilities and opportunities and great things that are happening in these small islands. Send in your questions and comments to info at odi.org with small islands in the subject line. And of course, please rate, subscribe, like and share the podcast. You've been listening to Small Islands Big Picture from the Resi Network at ODI.